All right, guys, welcome back to the show. And on the show with me today, I had the privilege of sitting down with my good buddy, Tony Khalil. And Tony runs Khalil Media, but more importantly, he's been a great friend and hunting buddy for well over 10 years now. We've hunted all kinds of stuff together, rabbits, squirrels, ducks, geese, coyotes, deer. I mean, basically everything you can hunt in Missouri, we've done it. But one thing we haven't done is gone out to uh, the West and hunted big game together out there. And so we had done a scouting trip together, but never actually both had a tag in our pocket when we've been up in the mountains. And so Tony actually approached me about a year ago about taking his dad out to Colorado and doing like a non-resident over-the-counter hunt. And so we've been slowly getting the plans together for that. We're excited to kind of finalize those plans here over the summer and then execute on them this fall. And so we're going to be doing more episodes than just this one. It's going to be a final uh, prep cost plan episode um, right before the hunt. That'll air probably right when we leave or maybe while we're out in the mountains. And then we'll do a nightly recap once we're out there. Just recapping, highlighting the things that we saw that day, um, the experiences we had, maybe where we went and where we found animals. And so all of those episodes I'll release probably one day at a time for about a week after the hunt is over. So look for those in the beginning of November, uh, maybe the second week in November, and those will be out. But yeah, it's, it's super exciting. Uh, it was good to sit down and chat with him. And a little update of what's going on here. We are still approaching turkey season, and it just seems like it's taking forever to get here. I've been seeing on Instagram all sorts of pictures from different states in the country that people are out hunting turkeys right now, and so I can't wait. I did go out and check trail cameras two days ago, and I had a ton of turkeys on camera all throughout the day, a lot of long beards, and so I can't wait to get the blind set up, get my gun, hopefully get a new gun, and then get that patterned and ready to turkey hunt. So that should all be coming up here in the next week. Um, and I haven't really gone out shed hunting. I have never really been into shed hunting. I mean, I've wanted to, but I've just never had the time to commit to it. And so I would like to get out and do that here in the next couple days and see if I can find some antlers on the ground. But before I drag this out any further, we're going to hop on with Tony and check out what we've got to say about our elk hunt. Like, he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like, we would be okay. Welcome to today's show, and on the show with me today, I've got now a three-peat guest. Three-peat. Three You're the second one. Sam was my first. and Oh, heck yeah, man. She was my first three of a lot of different things. Yeah. G-rated, man. G-rated. Yeah, G-rated. Um, we're we're going to hang out and talk about uh, an elk hunt that we have coming up later this year. Yes, sir. In October, and... We're also going to be talking a little bit about non-resident hunting, because mm -hmm. this is going to be a non-resident hunt for me, you, your dad, and whoever else ends up coming. There might be a couple other people that come. And so, I hope you guys can find some good information in this if you're looking at doing a non-resident hunt. 
there are so many places in this country that you can go and hunt big game over the counter as a non-resident. It's going to be more expensive, obviously, than if you were a resident, but we just want to share that it, it's definitely possible to get out and do these things. It's not far-fetched. You don't have to save up $10,000 to do it. Um, you can go and do it pretty cheap, save some of that stimmy money that you just got and uh, <laughs> yeah. make it happen. So, Tony, why don't you share to start a little bit about what inspired this hunt? Yeah, Dan. Um, really, I had always, you know, my dad went elk hunting when I was like eight years old, <clears throat> which I'm uh, 37 now, so it's a few years then. And, uh, you know, he actually went to Meeker, Colorado. And I actually used to wear this navy blue shirt with a Meeker, Colorado with an elk on it, like all the way through high school and through college, because I was like, you know, my dad went elk hunting, and we're from Mississippi and stuff, and so it was kind of a thing of pride in a lot of ways, but it also just sparked that dream of uh, wanting to chase elk. You know, I grew up whitetail hunting there in Mississippi. We had uh, 40 acres of our own, all hardwoods and pine, and we also had a couple thousand acres around us that could hunt for whitetail and stuff, but, you know, I always just had that, that bugle in the back of my mind, you know. Uh, that elk kind of calling me in a lot of ways. And um, little did I know down the road in my life, I'd work for Bass Pro Shops and work for their video department. And then I actually got to film a couple of elk hunts with some guys. And, uh, you know, we were doing archery. And it it was uh, it was an incredible experience. You know, I mean, I, I love stalking animals in the first place, but this just took it to a whole nother level. You know, you have kind of a, a white tail in mind and then also like a turkey combination, but you have also the mountains that you're dealing with and mountain wind and mountain temperatures and also the beauty of the mountains and everything that goes involved. And right then and there, like day one of the, of the elk hunt when I'm filming, I'm like, I really wish I didn't have a camera in my hand and I've got to come back. And so that's kind of what really sparked it for me. Yeah. So this will be your first license hunt, right? That's right. Because you've hunted them with the camera before. That's right. You've been with other people, but... Now you're gonna have a tag in your pocket. That's right. I'm gonna pay the fine and uh, and uh, put in the time and get it done. Hopefully, so. Yeah, I think it's gonna be really cool. We're gonna be going to the western slopes of Colorado um, to hunt. And if you guys haven't checked it out before, you need to look at the map on Colorado's Fishing Game website of all the different units because there are so many units. Yeah. A lot of people think, oh, I've got, to, I've got to draw a tag, I've got to put in preference points. But really, you can go day before and buy an elk tag and hunt. I mean, it's 50-plus units, I believe. Really? Where do, you, uh, where do you buy those from? So you actually go on the, on the Colorado Fishing Game website, mm. and there's a permit and licensing tab on there. You click on that, and then it pops up all the different things that you can hunt. Okay. Um, it's a little bit tricky. You can download the big game brochure and it'll tell you which ones are over the counter. Um, and that's for everything. I mean, for elk, for mule deer, for bear. Um, the other ones like mountain goat, bighorn, and moose, you actually have to draw for. And so that's where the preference points comes in and the application comes in. And then you have to, even after you have a lot of preference points, there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of different there's a lot of different things you have to take into account when you're going after the trophy big game animals really? in Colorado. Mm. But uh, this hunt, I mean, it's just under 700 bucks, and that's for a bull elk or an any elk tag. Yeah. So you can shoot a cow or a bull. 
Didn't you price. tell me you get a fishing deal with that too, I think? So if you're going to be putting in for preference points, in order to buy preference points, you actually have to purchase a license before you're able to do that, which okay. means you have to buy a fishing license or a small game license I gotcha. so that you're in their system. They have to do a verification process where you are, where you're actually registered in Colorado to be a hunter. They check where you took your hunter safety and all that. And so that's a little bit of a process, but I mean, it's a simple phone call really. Okay. It's what you can do is call a conservation agent out there and they can get you all hooked up with that. But cool. yeah, so for $688, yeah. you can get a, you can get an elk tag. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Um, you know, like I've looked at what they call kind of a gentleman's hunt, which would be like a full guide, you know, a lodge and that kind of thing. And we're talking anywhere from like four grand to 10 grand easy, depending if it's <clears throat> private or fence, which I'm not a big high fence guy, but I understand some dudes love it and that's great. Um, but, um, you know, at the same time, my dad and I wanted to do it old school, like he did it. And the way you guys have been doing it, once, you know, you've told me plenty of stories of you being out there. And of course, Sean as well, kind of sharing some of that. And, uh, man, I just, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. So we're going to the Western slope. Um, what kind of like altitude are we talking, you know? So I think we're going to be between 7,000 and 10,000, the majority of the hunt. You know, it could change depending on if we find elk down in flatland um, because we have seen them all the way down there at the watering holes for, for the free-range cattle out there. Mm -hmm. um, if it's hot, which it could be, yeah. or it could be freezing cold, uh, that's one of the big factors that we've got to think about. But, yeah, the elevation, it'll be... <laughs> It'll be over a mile higher than we are right now. Okay. I mean, we're sitting at, I think, mid-600s yeah. here in Missouri, and so, and your dad's probably even lower than that. Down yeah, in down in Mississippi. Yeah, he definitely is. He's at zero, I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe 200 feet. So, that that plays into it, but the nice thing is we're going to be doing a lot of uh, four-wheeler and side-by-side -side stuff. Okay. So, we're going to travel, for the most part on those, find some high vantage points, and then try to locate the elk, and at that point, we'll be on foot pursuing them cool so so it's kind of similar when we were scouting for moose we just find high points or rock slides or a clearing that's up high over a particular area that we think is going to be profitable we sit in glass and look and and if we see something we we assess and then move forward absolutely okay. and the elk really could be anywhere at that point they won't be in the wintering range yet which is good for us um but it could change Overnight, you know, the last time I was out there hunting, it went from 60 degrees one day to we woke up and there was about nine inches of snow on the ground. Jeez. And so it can happen fast. We had, I think, three days where it snowed and every day it would melt up high. Um, down in the valleys where it's shaded most of the day, it won't as much. But the difficult part is when you're hunting elk, if you have mixed snow, like there's some spots of snow on the ground some not you can't really pick out like their white butt or like the shape of them as well if it's solid snow you can pick them out way easier okay so we'll definitely keep an eye on that and it's going to be a lot of glassing which mm -hmm. is cool because we don't do much of that here you know yeah you can sit and look with your binos but everywhere we're looking here is 300 yards right so i'm guessing we'll probably be hauling some kind of small tripod to set our glass up rather than holding it with our hands because i've talked to a lot of guys that have done it and you know glass is really important and um i think that one thing that i always assumed i grew up in mississippi you know our woods are so thick there 
typically you just have funnels that you look through and you see it or you shoot it, right? Or you see it and glass it with your scope for a second and then go, well, I want that one or not and move on. But, um, you know, I've always seen those like super expensive uh, pieces of glass, you know, like Leica or your uh, Swarovski or, or uh, things like that. And, you know, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know if I want to spend $1,200 or anywhere up to $3,000 for the Leica rangefinders, $3,000 for the Leica rangefinder stuff. And, I'm like man, but I got to talking to a lot of pros, and they're like, "Look, if you are, if you are glassing eight hours a day, you really either need to rent, buy, or borrow real some decent glass." Yeah. And I think uh, I think you've got a set of uh, Vortex with a rangefinder on it that are really nice. I think they're ten by fifties, or what are they? I forget. Yeah, they're they're ten by fifty. I believe they're ten by fifty. Um, but they'll range out to 5,000 yards oh, wow. on a solid or on a reflective object. I gotcha. I've, I've ranged elk over 2,000 yards okay. with them before. Well, I'll let you hang on to that rangefinder one, and I'll bring my. I've got a pair of 10 by 50s that are also Vortex that aren't um, aren't rangies, but at least we can like put two sets of eyes on stuff. And I think Dad will have an, another set, and um, which I think there's actually a. A company called like Rent Guns and Gear, RentGuns.com, that one of my buddies did some video work for, and you can actually rent all that stuff too. That's awesome. But yeah, I've got that. I haven't gotten the renting equipment yet. Yeah. Um, I, but I know the eye fatigue is a real thing. Yeah. You know, when you're looking through binos or a spotting scope, it it takes a toll on your eyes pretty yeah. quick. But um, I think I think for where we're at, what the equipment that we've got now, it'll do. Do the job. Do the job. We'll at least be able to see if it's an animal we want to go after. And then once we get closer, we'll be all right. But what you were talking about, the tripod, yeah. the glass on. Um, Steve Rinella on his podcast, he he made me a believer at yeah. that point when he was talking about how you can see so many more animals if you're not holding your binos, mm. if you have them rested. Um, because it, it takes a toll not only on your eyes, but your arms, you know. Right. Trying to hold those up all the time, whereas if you can sit down on the side of the hill, have your glass in front of you, and just move your face towards it, it's it's a game changer. I got gotcha. you. Um, so, you know, you mentioned about the big temperature swings, and we know even here in the lower uh, the lower side of the U.S., like, I mean, moisture control is really everything when it comes to being able to stay out, stay alive, keep your, keep your limbs and toes and fingers in, in, in the right places. Uh, but you know, it really helps you, um, really stay out in the game and not miss the opportunity that you would have had if you didn't come prepared. Um, so maybe, maybe walk me through a little bit of like how you prepare for such a swing, a temperature swing. Um, cause we're moving, we're, we're driving, driving, uh, side by sides or ATVs, you know, we're going early in the morning, all day. Wind, wind, snow—it's a lot of stuff. So, how do you, how do you get your bag ready, you know, to, to be ready? So for that, it's all about layering. I mean, to have a good moisture-wicking base layer, uh, to where you know that sweat isn't sticking to you the whole day and cooling your body temperature down. Um, that is a very important thing that you have to take into consideration. And then, on top of that, you go from your base layer to your insulative layer. And so that's down for me. I always wear down like a puffy mm. set of pants or bibs. Same with the top. Um, I do zip off everything. Okay. Uh, it just makes it easier when you're trying to shed layers if it does start getting warm. But typically what I'll do is I'll have the base layer, the insulated layer, and then a good wind breaking 
outer shell, uh, something that's waterproof or water resistant at the very least. And for when we're on the four wheelers or in the side by side, you know, you're getting hit with that wind and that'll zap your, that'll zap your temperature or your mm -hmm. heat really quick. And so once we get out and we find elk, you know, we might go, we've got 2000 yards to cover right. on foot now. Right. And so at that point we can shed our layers at the side by side and move in with a lot less on so that we're not having to deal with that as we're getting closer. That way we're not sweating by the time we get there because a lot of people think, oh, the warmer I am, the better. Well, sweat will zap your heat way quicker. Even if, you know, you're fully covered, you don't think like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to start cooling down fast, but you will. And so we'll definitely take off a lot of layers, put on a lot of layers all throughout the day. Yeah, and then bootwear. Um, I'd already had a pair of Kentrex um, that I've been, I've been wearing them for probably four seasons now, and I knew that. I knew in back of my head when I bought the Kentrex. I mean, they're like, like four hundred, almost five hundred bucks. I knew when I bought them that like eventually I was going to be able to go chase an elk with these things, and so I know that, you know, developing the calluses actually on the back of your heel is really important. Because um, if you don't have these boots broken in, you don't really you haven't dialed in how to moisture manage your feet. You know that's that's a big deal. And um, I actually got my dad set up on some Danners um, as well. We found some at the Bass Pro Outlet, and they were like literally like half the price. It worked out great. And um, you know, for the listeners out there, you know, Dan and I have been talking a lot about like brands and what stuff to buy. And I felt like in this podcast, I wanted to kind of break. A little bit of um, the marketing plan of a lot of people and just kind of be like, man, do I have to really have the most expensive stuff? You know, granted, I'd love to spend $1,500 on the right setup, but at the same time, um, you know, I know that like you were talking about in Alaska the other day, we were, we were talking about um, some of his friends that are up there in a trip that he's, he's going to be taking here uh, soon. You know, they're like, the, the native Alaskans are like, I know exactly where you're from by the time you get here, and I see whether you have all brand new camo on, or if you're just wearing whatever you got, Carhartt, whatever um, kind of stuff, because they just don't, they don't, they don't buy into that stuff, and they, they still kill more animals than we've ever dreamed of, because they do it every year, and they know better, you know, and so I want to say, you can do these hunts, um, without breaking the bank on things, especially if you're only going to go, this is your first time, right? And if you got the money, spend it. Don't don't feel bad about it. But at the same time, you can still comfortably uh, hunt with with cheaper items. You just got to figure out what works for you, and also uh, what's going to work for the environment. But you have to be prepared. You have to know those 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 different sets of standards um, that are going to happen so that you're ready for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you were referring to. We stayed with a couple up in Kodiak Island, and they were talking about the blacktail hunt that they did the year before. And it was the girl's first time ever doing a blacktail hunt, actually ever hunting anything. And she's like, I killed a blacktail deer. And she was in a purple, I want to say it was a purple Columbia jacket when mm -hmm. she killed it. Wow. And she's like, that's just what I wear every time. I just go out in that because I know it's warm. I know it will break the wind for me. But... I didn't have to spend $700 on the nicest outer layer. Right. And so that changed my mind a lot with it. Like you said, I would love to have the money to spend and 
and get the nicest gear out there. But you can do it if you're from a somewhat cold state, if you have winter gear, you can bring your winter gear out and wear that. And if you're really concerned about camo, you can just get a camo, camo rain shell or okay. something like that yeah. and cover up if you're afraid that they're going to see you from a long way off. Well, we will have uh, Hunter's Orange on. And, you know, that was a little different with the archery stuff. You know, we were completely camoed out. And there wasn't really as much concern about movement that, I mean, you still need to be very careful when you're when you're hunting, especially with how close you have to be with, with the elk when you're, when you're doing bow range. But, yeah, it just it really stopped me in my tracks with that comment about your friends in, in the Kodiak area. I was like, you know, he's right and she's right. Like, you've you really just got to learn how to be still and be comfortable, and you can make it work. You, you know, can make it work. If you watch any of those Alaska TV shows where there's a guide taking people out, it's really funny because without even being introduced to them, if you jump in the program halfway through, you can see who's the guide and who's, yeah. the, who's the hunter. That's right. Just based off of what they're wearing. Yeah. And uh, they, I, I know a lot of those guys, they get a kick out of it afterwards. They're like, you know, I was standing right next to them. Yeah. The elk could look over and see all of us. Right. But two of us were in all camo, and one of us was wearing blue jeans and, yeah. you know, an orange shirt. And it, it doesn't matter to the animals. If you're smart about the way you hunt and approach the animals, yeah. you don't have to worry about the color or the pattern nearly as much as people think you do. Yeah. And the other thing, I, I picked this up from turkey hunting, which I'm trying to get more into, but a lot of the guys are saying the number one thing to worry about as far as being seen, is don't get skylined and stay in the shadows. Yeah. If you're in the shadows, they're not going to be able to pick you out. And so if you're on a lit hillside from the sun, you know, every movement you, you make, they're going to see something. Right. But if you're hiding in the shadows or kind of using brush or topography to your advantage, you can get a lot closer no matter what you're wearing. Sweet. Uh, so we'll be setting up a base camp at some place, I assume. Kind of like... I'm bringing my my white tundra, and I'm bringing it's got a camper shell in it, so I'll bring all of our stuff in it. Which um, I've got like a Oz tent uh, RV five for for Dad and I to sleep in, and it's got a cool little canopy so we can cook underneath it and get out from the elements. And it's got some side panels on it too to get out of the wind, so we can switch it. But um, basically, I've got cook stove stuff for making coffee. I'll have a I'm assuming a couple coolers because we'll need to bring meat back hopefully. Um, and we'll have a cleaning station set up so we can really process our meat out there as well. My dad and I both actually, um, I grew up working at a deer processing place here in Mississippi. And so I, I'm fortunate enough that I get, I don't think I've been to a processor in quite a while. And just cause I'm able to, I've been doing it, you know, for almost, almost 18 years now. I've been processing my own stuff. Now I still have to borrow some things here and there and don't get me wrong. Some of these processors have some great ways to make the best sausage in the world, which I don't have the, the stuff for, but, and I'll send stuff, um, sometimes I'll get some of that from some friends and I'll be like, oh man, that's pretty good, you know, but uh, what what's camp going to look like, you know? So camp will be, I mean, I've done everything from RV camping mm-hmm. to pop-up tent to wall tent, and so I think we'll probably have a combination of just different tents out there, okay. we're not pulling an RV out there. We're not pulling like a hard shell and close anything. And so um, I'll probably be in a pop-up tent. We'll have your tent. And then I know there's a lot of wall tents out there. Yeah. That, the, the nice thing about wall tents is it gives you a lot of space. And so you can have like a mess hall almost oh, wow. in there where you have the food, you know, you prepare, you have your 
you have your folding chairs in there and you can just kind of kick back and hang out. Yeah. Plus um, they have a stove in there typically. Oh yeah. Like, like oh, he did. Yeah. The wood stoves are great. I know we bring a blackstone out mm. a lot of times when we go out and that's just runoff propane, <clears throat> but that works as a heater also. I mean, you've got a cast iron griddle right. that's just radiating heat in the whole area. And so you can be using it for two purposes, one to heat the tent and one to cook your food. Yeah. So now do we typically like try to find a location that's out of the wind or is it in a valley or is it like, what does that location kind of look like? What's something to look for in a good camping area? Yeah, we'll look for uh, something that's out of the wind, a flat spot. And so whether that's up on a hillside that's got a plateau on it, or um, if it's down in the valley, that's typically where we go because the road access usually runs through the valley at some point. And so we want something close to the road so that we can pull our vehicles right up to where we're setting up instead of having to hike all of that gear in half a mile. You know, that's going to take a full day if we yeah. do that. So um, we'll do something real close to the road, in the, or real close to the two-track or whatever we're hunting off of. And then from there, we'll put some miles on every day on the four-wheelers and side-by-sides to get back to where the elk are. I mean, I'm assuming it would be a bonus to find some type of water source so that you're not just having to haul water in all the time or go X amount, you know, away to get water. Yeah. Yeah. I think a water source would be huge. And what we'll do is probably bring five gallon jugs full of water. Um, a lot of the guys that I hunt with, they do pull their campers out there. And so they've got a water holding tank. And so we've been fortunate to not have to carry, you know, gallons or water bottles or whatever. Um, we can just pull it straight from the tanks on the camper. But where we're at, we'll bring those five-gallon jugs just in case. And if we find a fresh stream, I'd rather drink stream water. Or, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather drink natural water than bottled water any day. So. Plus, it's fun if you can find a place you can fish a little bit if they have fish in there. And I think the last time we were with Sean, uh, we were doing the Moose Scout. We even we even got to swim, take a bath. You know, yeah. and that was like pretty chilly water, but it was exhilarating to be out there and, and just... Uh, you know, enjoying that aspect as well. I mean, it was it was just such a blast. I'd love to find something like that if we can. When you're out there for a week, yeah, there's nothing like cleaning up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would do white baths, and I know we've talked about the dude, the dude, dude wipes. wipes yeah, those things are a game changer. Yeah, you know, if you're starting to smell, you can just strip down and take a quick wet white bath. Yep. Um, but jumping in the creek, man, there's nothing like it. <laughs> I mean, that was cold water too. That was yeah, cold. it was freezing. Mountain runoff. It was freezing. Um, and so then I'm assuming we'll also probably pick up, either pick up wood or either just gather wood as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of places out there. I mean, there's deadfall left and right. And when we get into that and have to climb over it, we're going to wish we have a chainsaw. Yeah. And, you know, one, to get firewood and two, to kind of clear the path. But there there should be plenty of wood out there. What I'm guessing we'll do is bring a couple bundles of firewood just in case we don't get to a spot. Because where we're at, or living where we do we can't just go scout you know a couple weekends before and find the right spot we're going to be going out there blind to some extent we'll look at maps and aerials and all that stuff uh, to try to hone in our area within a couple miles at least but we'll we'll go out there as prepared as possible Mm -hmm. in case you know the location doesn't provide all the stuff we need for while we're out there but we're hoping that we find the right spots where we can gather that yeah, I guess a latrine will do either a hole or a bucket, huh? Yeah, so... What are the rules out there? Yeah, because we're... Is that BLM land, or...? You know, we'll probably hunt a lot of BLM land. 
Um, and for you guys that don't know, that's Bureau of Land Management. Yeah, so they own a ton of land, and they, they lease a lot of it for people who run cattle, and they can free range out there certain times of the year. Um, but what we'll do is probably dig a hole. Um, what, what the guys I hunt with do, they have one of those single man, like really quick pop-up, no pole, um, the little pop-up ground blinds. Yeah. And they just stake that down. And Perfect. And you've got like an enclosed area that you can... Yeah, we might be great grabbing one of those then, because, I mean, I don't mind, I go poop anywhere, but it, you know, when it's freaking 30 degrees outside and the wind's blowing 20 miles an hour, it's a pretty brisk poop with no, no cover. Oh, yeah. So. It's always, it's always different going out there and waking up in the morning and it's freezing cold sometimes and you're like, oh man, I've got to walk all the way over there to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. That's the one nice thing about the campers. Oh, I bet. They've got... There's guys that'll shower out there. I haven't taken a shower out there when I'm hunting. I'll just do the white bath or jump in the creek. But, um, yeah, I think that's probably the game plan for for using the bathroom. Well, kind of talking a little bit about smells, and too, I didn't bring this in my notes, but, like, you know, scent management, you know, in that kind of situation, is there really anything to, as much to worry about? I know we'll be playing wind quite a bit, which is also another big game in Colorado because the winds are just – quite different actually than kind of down here because they have like updrafts and stuff circling around and you know that's really important so like how do you guys manage that when you're out there so we don't do any scent control okay at all um for a couple different reasons one is we're on side by sides and so you've got the exhaust you've got when you're filling up with gas you know that stuff is going to stay on your clothes for a long time right and so it's a hundred percent about playing the wind and playing the thermals okay so for those that aren't used to mountain hunting um, the thermals in the morning as the, as the air heats up, it'll rise up the mountain. And so if you're up high and the elk are down low, they're not going to smell you because that, even with the wind, a lot of times the thermals will uh, trump the wind. Okay. And so in the evening, it's the opposite. The air is cooling down and it's dropping lower and lower. And so you want to be below them or uh, coming from the same level that they are. Uh, the nice thing about... What I've learned just from the people I've hunted with is you want to be on an opposing ridge line from where the elk are. Okay. Because if you're up above them and they're directly below you, not even taking wind into effect, you just can't see them. Yeah. Because, you know, there could be a five-foot cliff that hinders your view of the bottom 80% of the mountain. Oh, wow. And so if you're actually approaching them on the opposing hillside, you can see them and then maybe get above them and work down to them. So... That's going to be, there's a lot of differences, I mean, yeah. from from Western hunting to Eastern hunting. Whitetail hunting, you know, you look at the weather map or the weather app the night before and you say, okay, my wind's this way, I'm going to hunt this area tomorrow. Right. It's not like that out there. The mm. mountains change constantly. Wow. Uh, speaking back of transportation and gasoline, so I think our game plan is to possibly borrow or rent from a buddy of yours and if we can't do that then try to find something that we can rent up there because it kind of sounds like you know this particular area that we're going to be in um can have some decent amount of other hunters there you know this is going to be second rifle um season which is basically in between october 30th and november 7th <clears throat> but uh, you know there's you know what what kind of uh, UTV do you think we're going to get, or what do you think we're going to need, you know, and that kind of purpose? So I think what we'll, 
we're going to want a seat for every person that comes out hunting. Okay. So, you know, a single bench side by side will fit two, three people at the most. Um, unless people are going to try to hop in the bed a bit, which that I don't like, recommend. Because yeah. then you've got your packs, you've got your rifles, you've got the elk, hopefully, yeah. at the end of the day. And there's just not enough room. And so what I'm guessing we'll end up doing is having a side-by-side and then a couple ATVs. Okay. Um, and that always helps, too, because problems come up. I mean, you yeah. know, when we were on the, when we were scouting moose, yep. I ran into a log. Everybody told me, hey, look out for that log coming around this <laughs> Freaking speared it. And I thought I was far enough out, but I'd never driven a full um, crew cab side-by-side before, and that thing was way longer than expected. Yeah. And it... it so was that stick you ran into. Yeah. It, uh, it punched through that quarter panel like yep. it was nothing. Mm-hmm. But we had issues last year when the four-wheeler, actually the four-wheeler I was on, broke down multiple times on us, and we just couldn't figure out what it was, so hmm. we had to tow it back. Oh, wow. And I was kind of bummed because there was a lot of things that I missed having to be towed back. I'm sitting on the four-wheeler, helping steer it, having to watch the line in front of me so that we didn't get too much slack in it, and I start running over the tether. And a couple guys that were behind me came flying up, and they were like, did you see that giant tom? There was a huge mountain lion. Oh, wow. About 75 yards from us. on Like, we were in a two-track. It was out in this meadow, and it was just standing there, and it watched as the side-by-side that was pulling me (laughs) and me drove right past it. And then when they pulled up, they saw it stopped, and then they got to watch it bound across the field. Oh, wow. That's something that I missed because I was being towed. Jeez. Jeez, man. So to have backups is... A huge deal. You don't want to be pushing a four-wheeler yeah. four miles back to camp in the mountains. Yeah. Well, we'll get that stuff dialed in, and hopefully, I mean, it sounds like it's actually pretty imperative, and I didn't know how imperative it was, especially because the last time I went in, we were doing a gentleman's hunt, and it wasn't high fence, but we pretty much walked from uh, the lodge to the location, and I mean, we still walked like almost four to five miles to get to the spots, to the meadows that we're looking at. And it, it was profitable for us, but ultimately I just didn't have that experience. And it sounds like this is going to be, you got to have it. Yeah. You got to have it. Yeah, we'll definitely have it because where we're at, I mean, there are people. We I ran across a guy the last time I was out there and he had hiked in from the road. Mm-hmm. And he said he'd been hiking for about six hours that day. Jeez. Which, don't get me wrong, I love a good hike. But he hadn't seen anything coming in because he was hiking through the valley and the whole hillsides on both sides of him were tree covered. Right. So it's like there could be a hundred elk in there. Never know. Never see them. Yeah. And so people can hike in for sure. Yeah. But we were putting, some days we were putting 100, 120 miles on the four wheelers and side by sides. Wow. So gasoline's going to be another thing. Yeah. Unfortunately, we can't find that naturally out there. So we're going to bring that. and some fuel stabilizer for the extreme temperature changes. That way it, it doesn't start to gel up on us at all. Sweet. So when it comes to rifles, my dad's going to bring his Remington 300 BDL, which he's literally had since he, his first elk hunt <laughs> back when I was eight years old nice. in the 90s. And he's hunted with that gun this, you know, since then. He's killed plenty of deer, that kind of thing. He's got a nice Vortex set up on it as well. Um, he's been practicing kind of that three to 400 range. So I think he's going to be pretty good. I'm bringing my Winchester Ranger 270, which is basically a, uh, a lesser, I think it's a model 90, I forget, but of, of the Winchester bolt action to the traditional one. And I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a, I think a four by 16 vortex on it, which is similar to, I think yours is Dan, but it'll be my backup gun. 
So tell me a little bit about your setup. I believe you have a Browning uh, Hell's Canyon 6.5 Creedmoor with a Vortex setup. Tell me a little bit about that rifle and how it's going to benefit us. So before I dive into that, I do want to touch on the glass because there's a company that we've used, and you just mentioned them, Vortex. Yeah. They make a phenomenal set of glass. I mean, for scopes, spotting scopes, binos, and it's far less than the high-end stuff. Yeah. As well as they've got, I can't remember, is it a VIP warranty or something like yep. that? Lifetime, I've heard of people having the binoculars burn in a house fire, and they bring a chunk of it back to Vortex, and they'll replace it. Oh, wow. Or they'll repair it if it's possible. But So I use Vortex on almost everything right now. Um, that rifle I bought a couple of years ago. I actually bought that for my wife. Um, and then I've got, I got a 28 Nosler, okay. which she did, which now I've gifted to my brother. And I've just found that a lot of people think you need, you know, like the 338 Lapua, you can reach out to 1400 yards with it if you have to. And the reality is we don't take a lot of shots like that. The wind changes so much, unless you are a long range shooter that knows how to read the wind, knows how to read elevation changes, all of that, like you're not going to have success lobbing rounds out there unless you're trained in that thing. No, I know I won't be. The only thing I lob is a 22, and so it's uh, not not that accurate. So, uh, Hey, I mean, you did it great this weekend. Mm. We went out, and we were shooting on some public land, and what was it, 165? You yeah. You were gongs with your 22 just from a seated position. Open charge. Yeah, so after that, I had a lot more confidence that you weren't only a uh, killer when it comes to shotgun hunting, but rifle hunting, I'm pretty confident you're going to knock well, down. The only thing is, guys, I was shooting with my wife's 43, Glock 43X as well, and uh, I was not as accurate, so I'm just going to say that for the record. But you put a shotgun in my hand, you're going to be dead man. Yeah. So, but anyways, but I'm looking forward to it. It, uh, I think I've shot in your 6.5, which is, that round, I believe, is kind of a souped up 270, basically. Yeah, I think the, I think the actual, uh, bullet diameter is like 0.263 so I mean it's just under but it packs so much power and it carries so much energy with it out to long ranges so that gun has enough knockdown power to take out an elk I mean out to 700 yards oh wow and I've heard of people doing it longer I just don't feel confident enough it's all about shot placement at that point but I don't get a chance to shoot that far very no. often so I try to stay within 400 yards if I'm taking a big game animal but yeah, that rifle, I mean, it screams, man. And the other thing people need to understand is if you're going to go out western big game hunting, you have a hunting rifle and not a showpiece rifle. That's because right. it's going to get dinged up. Yeah. That scrub oak will tear everything up. And so expect to have scratches on you, on your clothing, on your gun, your scope, everything. But the, the scope I'm using is actually a Vortex Viper PST2, and it's 5 to 20... 5 to 20 by 50. And so it lets a lot of light through. It's funny because if you're looking at an elk and it's starting to get dark, you can actually see it more clearly with the scope. Like it's just illuminated more because it's pulling so much light through the end of that optic. Wow. Um, what does that price point run at? You know, I think I bought both items brand new, and I want to say the scope was around the $1,300 range which now you can get it for like 900 bucks. I got it when it first came out. And right. so, you know, I lost a lot of money after about a year, but I'll, I'll have that rifle in that scope forever. 
the rifle itself, again, I think was in that $1,300 range when I bought it. Um, I bought it from a big box store, and so I paid a little bit more for it. Um, but it was just there when I showed up. So all in, I mean, I've got 2,600 bucks into it, but I know you can you can go out there with a Winchester 270 and drop an elk, and as long as you're confident shooting, like it's all about shot placement. Yeah, I think I paid like actually my dad bought that gun for me when I was 13, <clears throat> and um, you guys might think that's a big too big of a rifle for a 13 year old. It's not. It's um, actually he ended up cutting the stock off of it for me and to to kind of fit me. And when I got older, we just screwed and glued it back on, and I've still been using it since. And uh, I think we paid maybe 300 bucks for it all all said and done back then. And uh, and it's done a great job. So I'm looking forward to having it with me. And I think if I have, I'm going to carry it with me. I'm going to carry it, even though we're going to have three guns with us, which I don't know if it's smart or not. And you'll, you'll tell me that or not. But I mean, if that, if that elk's in 200 yards, I'm, I'm definitely going to take it with that 270. Now I think Sean actually, he shoot, he shot the 270 for a long time for elk, right? Yeah. He's, he uses the 270 to this day for elk hunting. Um, the only time he bumped up was when he drew his moose tag and then he got a big rifle. I mean, I think his rifle that he bought was the smallest caliber that you could legally hunt elephants with. Oh, wow. And he just wanted some. He didn't want to have to chase a bull moose down through brush that's wounded. You know, he wanted to make sure that if he pulled the trigger, it was going to drop within sight. So, what grain is he? What grain does he usually shoot on that 270? I want to say he's shooting like 140 grain, maybe. Um, I know the 6.5 I'm using, I'm shooting 143 grain. Okay. And it's the Trophy Hunter. The expansion on it's unbelievable. I had <clears throat> so much success with shooting big game animals with that ELDX round because mm-hmm. it expands. And actually, I've found several bullets now that I've shot an animal with, and it opens up so much that it doesn't even penetrate the far side of it. Oh, wow. And so I know on an elk and a deer, I shot a deer at 40 yards with a 300 wind mag, but I was using that ammo. And it didn't punch through the side. Go through the far side of it. Yeah, my dad's always used um, that higher grain in the 300 wind mag too. And I mean, we've the exit wound. If you don't have that that really expandable bullet, I mean, it blows out that whole other quarter, which you just don't want to do if you don't have to. And I think that the 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 thought is that you need much higher grain. I mean, I'm even the, the shops that I've been looking at for ammo, which are you can't really find ammo right now. Um, I'm, I'm gonna have to go on gunbroker.com and and buy my ammo for this shoot for this hunt, but you just end up wasting so much meat, and yeah. you just don't want to do that. No. And you don't have to use that high of a grain. And it's, the more I've gone into the blogs, the more I've talked to Sean and and um, into Dan. You know, you you do your homework on your on your round and on your grain because even though it's an elk, and even though we, we've always had these thoughts that you really need this heavier grain, you really don't. You just need to know where to shoot the animal and make sure you have a good shot when you do it. Yep. And you have to, I mean, to the whole damaging meat side of things, you have to prove if you don't have all four quarters and you get stopped by an agent out there, they're going to start questioning you and they'll want to see the kill site if you left meat there that you should have packed out. And so you really have to prove that it was non-salvageable meat, which we had to do uh, on the last time I was out there. Sean actually shot a bull elk we went down and we were skinning it out and we could tell as he shot at it 
that something was off about it. It wasn't running. It wasn't like acting like a healthy elk would. We thought it had a foot injury at first. Well, then when we went to quarter it out, the front right shoulder actually had a traditional broadhead in it that somebody had shot oh, wow. with a recurve bow probably earlier in the year. And it ruined the whole front right shoulder oh, wow. of the elk. And so we took pictures of it. We documented it because, I mean, it was infected. It had all kinds of bacteria. And we didn't want to, you know, get fined for wasting the meat. Right. Uh, a lot of the western states, you really do have to watch that. And you have to make sure you're taking all the meat that you can. I know in Alaska, I read through the brochure before I blacktail hunted, you have to take the neck meat, the ribs, the back straps, uh, the tenderloins, all four quarters. I mean, you can't leave meat on the bone out there. Wow. I didn't know that. That's good. That's really good information, especially for a first-time elk hunter. <clears throat> so one of the other big questions I have is kind of the weather, weather, the weather conditions. And so how does that affect these elk and in their patterns, you know? In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, with a big, whether you have a big snowstorm, are they going to set up and bed down in a valley and get out of it between some trees or something? Or are they going to go, go higher because they know the snow is going to melt and they're going to find more food up there? Like, what happens? So in cold, windy weather, they're going to look for cover just like we would. We don't want to be out in the elements. And so a lot of times in cedar thickets or in pine groves, like they're going to be tucked in those, hiding from the wind, hiding from the snow. Um, but as the winter progresses, they have to have food. You know, they can't go all year. They're not like a bear where their heart rate drops and they just hunker down for the winter. They have to find that food. And so if there's a ton of snow high up on the mountains that they can't dig through um, effectively or efficiently, they have to get down to where they can browse for their food. And so we'll definitely keep that in mind if we get a freak snowstorm, which I know they just had out there a couple yeah. of weeks ago. I mean, they got dumped five feet in some spots. Those elk can't survive up there for more than a day or two. Oh, wow. They have to move down to lower elevation where they can still browse. And so that's going to play a big a big factor into it. Um, I know once the shooting starts, because we're, shoot, we're hunting second rifle season, they know as soon as those guns go off that they're being pursued. And before that even, muzzleloader and archery. So they're going to tuck back into some thicker areas, more difficult to get areas. And so we're going to have our work cut out for us if we're, if we're going to find the really big ones. Mm. So <clears throat> what to you is like the smallest bull elk that you'll shoot, you know, like rack size or like what, what, what's your kind of stopping point? You're like, if I could shoot it in between this range and this range, like, what is that? What is that for you? You know, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of scoring of big game animals. Um, you know, I, I pay attention more to age than anything. Okay. But as far as elk goes, there is an antler restriction in a lot of those over-the-counter units where you have to have brow tines that are, I want to say it's six inches or taller, or you have to have three on one side. My cutoff, I've kind of determined is a four-by-four four is the smallest I'll go. I really push for a five-by-five or bigger. Um, but, you know... If it's getting towards the end of the week, I know this might piss some people off, but a lot of people say if you wouldn't shoot it on the first day, don't shoot it on the last day. I don't buy into that at all. You know, I'm out there to get meat more than I am antlers, and 
I'll hold off if I see a small bull and I think we're going to come across bigger ones. I'll shoot. I'll shoot something maybe I wouldn't have taken on the first day later on in the week. But really, four by four is my cutoff. I think for anybody going out for the first time, what I was told my first hunt with these guys is shoot whatever makes you happy. And once you get an elk down, for some reason it becomes so much easier to get the next elk down. Hmm. You know, once you break that seal and and you feel like it's possible and you can do it and it's not just a dream or a hope. Right. You, the confidence that you have out there hunting, it really affects the way you hunt moving forward. And so I would say for you, for your dad, for anybody else, and I know your dad's elk hunted now mm-hmm. already, but it's been a long time. Yeah. Whatever, whatever they're going to be happy with, whatever they're going to be excited about, you know, one thing you don't want to do is go out there and then regret shooting something right but there's always a bigger elk out there you yeah. know we're not going to shoot the world record elk although that would be awesome yeah you know it, if you're happy with it if you think man this is something i'm going to be proud of i'm going to have stories about that's what it's all about to me so cost wise i think i'm budgeting between like driving from missouri to the area we're heading um tags food gas rental all that kind of stuff I'm guessing it's going to be somewhere between like, if we get lucky, like two thousand to three thousand dollars per person. Is that kind of what you're you're thinking? Now, granted, yeah. you've gotten a lot of stuff out of the way that you don't have to purchase. I've had to buy a few things, uh, but kind of where do you think that budget lies? Yeah, I mean, I think as far as the tag goes, we're going to be looking at you know seven hundred bucks for the tag, right? Um, on top of that, gas per person is going to be a couple hundred. Yeah. And then food, in addition, is going to be a couple hundred more. Right. And so what? A lot of times, what we do is we'll pre-make meals on yeah. the way out there. We bring the mountain house or you know the dry packed food, um, or freeze dried food or whatever you want to call it. Um, we'll bring that out if we do a spike camp one night. But aside from that, you can really go pretty cheap on food. You can go uh, cheap on gas when. You factor in, you know, three to five right. of us being out there. And so, really, I, on my end, I feel like it probably won't even get to the 2,000 mark. Oh, that's great. Person. That's great to hear. Um, you know, your dad's traveling a little bit farther. Yep. you got airfare for him. Yep. And so that factors into it. But as far as driving and gas, you can do it pretty cheap um, and still have an experience that a lot of guys don't think is possible. Yeah, that definitely helps, kind of thinking about that in that way where it's, I mean, again, the, the hunts that I've been on have been the gentleman's hunt. So it's like you got a five-star gourmet chef and all this other stuff that's going in and then a really expensive cabin and that kind of thing. So this is uh, this is looking really great because, I mean, ultimately, like, I don't want this to be my only time to ever do this, yeah. you know, and, and uh, money's always tight. So it's just like, you know, find the cheapest way to do this but also not cut corners where you don't have to. Yeah. And so I'm really looking forward to that and, you know, really – this hunt, you know, for my dad and I is real special because we've actually, we've deer hunted, of course, before and we've duck hunted before, all on private land stuff and it was all free, basically. But, you know, this one's going to cost some money, but I think the benefit's going to really outweigh it uh, for sure because I know that, you know, my dad will be 66 rolling into this and he's in good health thank god and uh he's preparing putting the miles in getting the calluses on his heels he's been working in his uh, new boots this last three months and um you know he's really excited to get to do this and we've we you know we've talked every week about it really since we've since dan and i even 
thought about kind of getting this thing together and he's just super excited that's awesome and i know that he's like man you know if we we get up here and i don't shoot one i don't care i just get to spend time with you that's all i care about and i think you know um knowing that that the, the wind's already there you know yeah. so to speak I'm, I'm really looking forward to this yeah the anticipation of getting out and doing it is something that there's almost like a withdrawal from it when mm. the hunt's over oh i bet you know because you're looking forward to something for a year yeah you know planning and just envisioning how it's going to go down and then yeah. kind of towards the end of it it's like man that was awesome i absolutely loved it but it's over yeah you know, it's just kind of like what women go through with postpartum oh yeah that. i'm like that's kind of how i equate it to wow what i equate it to um and it's just with any hunting season you know yeah. how it is with yeah. duck hunting when that's when the final day comes and you're packing up and heading home it's just kind of like a little bit of a depression just a little bit to. just a little bit but uh along with the with the um food side of things yeah I want to bring up, there's a recipe, which I'll actually post a link on here. There's, uh, they call them thousand calorie bars. Oh. Or it's another, there's another name for it. I think it came from Lord of the Rings, actually. Like <laughs> that bread that they always oh, yeah. eat when they're... The playing. elven bread. Yeah. So my buddy Brad got me hooked on to it. Okay. And he gave me the recipe. And so Ooh. every year I go out, whether it's on the moose hunt, the elk hunt, mountain goat hunt, I always bring this stuff with. And I mean, there's peanut butter and syrup and oats and honey and all of this different stuff, but it's about a thousand calories for each, I think, two by four inch bar. Oh, wow. And so it's like a hopped up granola bar. Really? And we bring those out. We cook them up beforehand. You can put cashews, almonds, walnuts, whatever you want in it. Protein powder, probably. Yeah. You can yeah. throw protein. I mean, you can kind of change it however you want you could make it a chocolate one if you wanted yeah but that keeps me going that's almost all i pack out with me when we're when we're going out on the trail i can throw a ziploc bag of those in my pack and be good until i come back for dinner that night wow well i look forward to eating some of those because brad's a a really good cook anyway so i bet they're pretty tasty yeah well to see how good a cook you are (laughs) (laughs) well how good a cook my wife is okay well we know we know that's a win yeah sam could throw it down yeah it's a it's a treat for sure Oh, yeah. Cool, man. Well, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Um, thanks for really helping me plan this thing out and really build this dream. You know, like, that's a, that's a special thing, and I'm glad you're going to be with us. So Yeah, it should be good. I think it's going to be a good bonding time for you and your dad. And I don't know if I mentioned it to you. I was out for my brother's graduation in Colorado, and I mentioned it to him, and he might try to come out. Oh, that. man, that'd be great. He's never done a big game hunt like that before, but now he lives in Colorado. So. Yeah, come on, Josh. Let's Talking go, buddy. Cost, he's going to be well under $1,000 yeah, because be. he'll be out there, and he gets a resident tag. So. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, it'll be a good time, and we'll probably do another podcast leading up to it. Absolutely. Um, just final cost, what it looks like um, once we have the area dialed in, once we have the ATV and side-by-side stuff figured out. Um, we'll do one of those and then hopefully we'll do a, a nightly recap Come on. of each hunt, hopefully with some success stories, if not shooting something, just the stories from the day and how much fun we've had. Yeah. And hopefully not another one where you put the rental UTV through a tree or something. Oh man. I did. Yeah. I've never really wrecked anything and that, that tore me up. I felt like an idiot for a while. Yeah. Part of it. Yep. Part of it. Well, man, thanks for being here. Yep. I appreciate it. Where's uh, if, if someone wants to look at the work that you do or find out more about you, where can they go and check that stuff out? Sure. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, you can you can go to kalilmedia.com, and that's K-A-L-I-L media.com, and uh, you can click on my link there to see some of my work, and uh, I'd love to 
have you click on there and take a looky loo. Sweet, man. Well, I appreciate it. It's going to be fun. And that is going to wrap things up for this podcast. I had a ton of fun sitting down with Tony and chatting with him about this upcoming hunt. And I definitely look forward to getting more content out there for you as it leads up to this hunt. And as we are actually out there, hopefully we've got some cool stories to share with you from the mountains. Um, But I encourage all of you guys, go check out Tony's work. He really is a world-class videographer. He's done some stuff for major brands that I'm sure all of you have heard of. And you can see all of that at his website or check out his social media platform for maybe some of the personal stuff, uh, pictures and videos from the hunts that I've been on with him. I, I think you'll really enjoy it if you go and check those things out. So that's all I've got for you today. Uh, if you're out there hunting, fishing, shed hunting, any of the above, I hope that you find success with it. I hope that you enjoy God's creation. And so until next time, always choose adventure. God bless, and we will see you later.